Calling all AEC professionals. Get ready for unparalleled professional insights with detailed and original podcasts by RCAD. This is the podcast that brings you the untold stories and lessons learned behind the design and delivery of a building project. Hey, it's Sharice Lakeside, aka the CSI Kraken, and your host. Join me as we dive deep into the tales of conflict, triumph, and sheer ingenuity. Yeah, so when Serena was named for the, it was going to be named for the building, you know, we really were able to work with teams at Nike Branding and how to really infuse her influence and identity in the very public spaces. Detailed features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who spill the beans on the most complex, interesting, and downright odd building conditions they've encountered. Another challenge of the of the shuttle is actually and putting it in launch position is how you brace that seismically. It's really supported by only two pins at the base of the booster rockets. And there's a large base isolator that's underneath the shuttle that kind of prevents it from moving too much in an earthquake. The, you know, when you have 600 people or 300 people in a room, acoustically, you really need a high floor to floor so that you can have the right acoustic environment for people to be able to talk and that, that speech intelligibility is really good. Every episode unveils lessons learned and connects you to the products you need to navigate similar challenges. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Detail today and be prepared for the unexpected on your next project. Every building has a story and we are here to tell it. Starting an architecture firm is an exhilarating journey filled with highs and lows. This season of emerging marked our thrilling plunge into the world of being business owners. We hope our story has provided valuable insight for anyone embarking on a similar path. I'm Jeffrey Lee, and this is Emerging, a Gable Media Podcast. We rely on each other and we happen to be business partners, but we're also like friend, we're not like... Uh, what do you call it? Friends. Yeah, we're friends. <laughs> well, we're reliant. We're reliant on each other emotionally for support. Right. Yes. Build one house. Mm-hmm. The three of you. Just whatever it is. Just buy the cheapest piece of <laughs> plot. <laughs> Build smartly. Don't do all of the your design tricks in one one building. Just build right. smart. This is the podcast where you'll hear what it's really like to start a new architecture firm. Over the course of this season, we've discussed our origin story, explored business models, shared our branding process, identified our business structure, discussed legal risk and management considerations, illuminated the financial aspects of a firm, considered avenues to find work, examined various tools and SOPs to improve our workflow, and analyzed our marketing approach. If you haven't listened to these episodes, I encourage you to go back and listen to all the episodes to hear the full unfiltered story behind our journey to start an architecture firm. Today, we'll discuss where we go from here, and we'll bring you along for our first annual end-of-year charrettes, or company retreat. But first, we evaluate our performance so far. Year one was a great way for us to get into a rhythm of working, It was a great way for us to kind of 
look at what the breadth of doing this was going to take. And then, of course, framing our mind around maybe the timeline of what that is in the way that we've chosen to do it, which is, you know, running in parallel with working full-time jobs, you know, and doing it in our free time. And so we've had to like reassess kind of our timeline and our goals as that has changed and adapt our thinking to that and not not get too down on ourselves when maybe things take longer has been a big takeaway for me personally. I think all of us, but definitely for me because it can get a little frustrating when you're like, oh, I thought it was just, this is what, the way it was going to be. And then when it's not, you're like, oh, shoot. But then not learning to just like let, not let it go because you need to have some kind of rigorous approach in certain manners to like keep the eye on the prize. But being, I don't know, res- not respect, respectful is the wrong word, but like being nice to yourself and to each other that, I think it's only strengthened our relationship is what I will say, which has been a real big joy for me. And I was a little worried that it might deteriorate our relationship on some capacity. Not, you know, I was not really, I didn't really think it would, but you know, you hear about people starting Mm -hmm. things together and having that go haywire. And if anything, it's made us much closer and more familial in how we interact with each other. Lexi, I think you hit on so many good things there. Like not getting down. I I ran off for a second to grab the napkin sketch that we did at this year's charrette (laughs) just to do like a refresh or last year. Yeah, last year's charrette. Just to do a refresh on on what the takeaways were. What the heck? Yeah. We look like kindergartners. There's some there's some clear ones there, which is you win some and you lose some, which was kind of the theme of that charrette. I think we did a couple competitions and we we didn't we won none, but I don't think we ever got like down on ourselves about that. I think we we actually took it pretty humorous. Everything was a, a learning experience, but it it also built you know it built our portfolios. It wasn't like we were it was a complete loss. So right, but yes, yes, it's it's you have to have a tough skin sometimes. And I think backing up to another point that you made, Lexi, you know, when we're always on like a a text thread together, just kind of, you know, sharing things with each other as well as with a larger group. But just the fact that we catalyzed around Sunday, like I get to talk to these two every Sunday, especially during the COVID times, like that was such a great way to be social and and just reconnect. (laughs) Like. We never lost connection. We always stayed in touch. We always saw each other, you know, once a year at least. But just having, you know, once a week to check check in with each other and some of it was recorded, not all of it. And it was just great to be able to be more in touch with these two working towards a communal goal. That was definitely a highlight. On here, it also says lists, 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 Excel produce faster so i think i think that was something that we acknowledged at the end of the year like we we shouldn't be spending months on these competitions it needs to go quicker i'm also realizing as part of the marketing thing we didn't talk about the podcast at all but that was something like very conscious about us like that happened our second or third week of of meeting we i think we had been listening to the startup podcast separately and listening to a lot of the entree architect or gable media stuff and we thought you know we've 
we're reading books, but there's not really a podcast out there that documents this in real time. And reaching out to the team at Gable, I think it was like our second or third week meeting collectively. Mm-hmm. And we're like, oh, we'll just throw this out in the wind, probably won't hear anything back. And there was an email back like within a, an hour or like the next day or something. And then that was just anxiety inducing, like, oh no, <laughs> we might actually have to do this now. And here we are. But I think that was something that we've always been really excited about as well as nervous about because, you know, all, all of starting a business is putting yourself out there in a very public way, which inherently we're not the most comfortable with. I think those were some of the, the highlights of the year. Well, it's a lot of just throwing ideas out, which is yeah. kind of still mm-hmm. the approach we take. We throw a lot of ideas at the wall and try a lot of different things. And through those failures or successes is how we've sort of the only way we really know how to approach some of these things, especially, you know, a project is a project and that is something we know how to do. But like all the other pieces that it takes to the business, the marketing, the financials, the lawyer, the this, the that, like we didn't know any of that. And so it's been a lot of trial and error, but you know, there's hi- there's highs and lows that come with that. But then the in the end, it, it, I think it's been a net positive. Yeah, I don't, I don't think in in all the mistakes and losing that we've done. Yeah, I don't, I don't think those like leave a mark on me. Like I'm never surprised when we lose a competition. That's almost an assu- <laughs> assumption from the beginning. But when you win one. That's what sticks. Like the 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 good feeling is what sticks. The the downtime, I think we do a great job balancing each other out. And it's like, oh man, well we registered as our own business. Well, we'll fix it now. So I think the bad stuff do- doesn't get us down, but the good stuff does really push us forward and remind us why we're doing the doing this. Through the ups and downs, we recognize the significance of building a strong firm culture, and building on that idea we decided to organize an inaugural year-end charrette, or company retreat. This was a crucial milestone that allowed us to assess our progress, set long-term goals, and deepen our sense of camaraderie. The beginning of the year, we hadn't really established like goals necessarily. We ha- we knew that there were some like key targets of like register to do this, register to do that, but we hadn't really done, okay, where do we want to be in five years? Where do we want to be in 10 year kind of goal mapping? And so I had done some research into like how some smaller companies like do some of those goal setting, like what those kind of timelines are like so that we could maybe decide, well, what are the timelines that are important to us? And then I had also looked into like what are some of the things they do as for like team building? Not that, you know, we're pretty close already, but like fostering that and keeping that a part of the business is important to us. It's what keeps us like happy day to day. <laughs> and so like, I think that has helped because then it's not just about the financials or the this or the like the tasks. It's about like Long term, we also have goals of it being about us as individuals, like fostering each other to have like generally better lives. <laughs> so, you know, and meeting our own personal goals. So I think I put together like a work session, like agenda, you know, for a few days timeline. And we tried to build in some ritual like 
We had originally done that napkin sketch 10 years ago. So now every year we redo the napkin sketch, which is fun and kind of a memorialized thing, I guess, every year that we can look back at. We also built in like we were were interested in fabrication. So we try to do some kind of or we tried to do some kind of thing that was like, oh, we build something together just to have like an activity that's not just like brainstorming and writing more sheets, which everybody knows at this point, I hate sheets. Having those things be a part of that process was, I think, equally important to the kind of logistical stuff that we maybe need to get through at the end of the year to, to evaluate. Yeah, I'm so, I'm so happy that you drew the straw on putting together the agenda for that work <laughs> session because I think you approached it in a way that I probably wouldn't have thought to and, and it has worked out great. And I think you were doing research on like company retreats, which sounds like the cheesiest thing like, oh God, please don't make me do a company retreat. But I think I, think I watched Im- Parks and Rec and they do. Oh, is that what it's all based on? Perfect. <laughs> N- not oh, solely, but I think <laughs> I think I did think about some of those things because they are funny and like our personalities are such <laughs> that we need some level of levity to like be interested and keep it going, you know? So it sounds stupid, but like those parts are important. I think those are also things that at least Unfortunately, in the places I've worked, I haven't gotten to get that kind of like familial relationship with the office or felt like maybe a necessarily like integral part to that process. And so fostering that, having a chance to decide we're going to like foster that in our situation was like a opportunity to fill maybe that hole. It's it's also really establishing a firm culture, you know, yeah. like we mm-hmm. were, we're a team of three and we kind of are don't necessarily like we know how we work and it's just kind of default but finding a way to kind of build that into the structure of the office you know maybe one day we'll have an employee and we'll force (laughs) them to do this retreat with us and they're gonna hate it and roll their eyes but at the end of it hopefully it's a beneficial thing where you get to build something and draw something stupid on a napkin that kind of captures what your year of experience has been and what what you're looking ahead to for the next year. On day three of the charrette, we set out to build a mock-up of our warming hut structure. The idea for the structure's facade was that it was clad in a thatch reed. Our materials were humble. Simple strings artfully woven together to craft an intricate lattice, reminiscent of gill nets. The inspiration behind this choice was none other than our shared fascination with the survivalist show alone. I mean, not to diminish it in any way, but it wasn't like a huge mock-up. I mean, we were in New York City and we were working in a a loan studio space to us for the weekend. So it was a little bit limited, but we were happy. It's on our website. It became a piece. We put the warming wishes onto our website and there's a research page for that project. Like we were saying, we do the project and then the research page. So on the research page, our mock-up is on there. That lives under the project Page. I don't think we made a separate research one. Oh, it does? Oh, I thought we made a separate research one. No, no, it's it's in the main project one, but it also has, in our true fashion, Jeff brought his GoPro and, and filmed a time lapse of the fabrication of it. And I think that's another thing, a downside of being remotely. Like, Ideally, we would have done this fabrication piece as part of the design process. This unfortunately came after we had already lost the competition. So I can't say... Uh, Well, we learned something from it, but it wasn't applied to the proposal itself. 
which I think, you know, we were surprised by the amount of time it took to do a little, you know, one by two grid of this. And we were proposing, you know, four massive structures to be built in like three days with this. <laughs> so we, we learned something and ideally that's part of our actual design process, but just having the kind of opportunity to work together with our hands again is, is equally as important. On another day of our charrette, we had the opportunity to meet with Nader Tarani, principal of NADA, a Boston-based architecture and urban design firm. NADA's implementation of fabrication served as an inspiration to us. We wanted to find out more about their approach and glean on any insights to help us on our path. Office Star was launched in 1986, uh, right after Rodolfo El Khoury and I graduated from RISD. We had no experience, but we had just the, the intuition that we had an agenda and we wanted to do something with it. And we and the economy was still good. Uh, and so we got a few jobs and we went to work right away. But there were limitations, uh, intellectual ones, practical ones. And so both of us eventually gravitated towards graduate school. Rodolphe towards uh, PhD programs and myself towards a second design degree after the AA in history and theory. And I went to the GSD. It was at that point that after the urban design degree that I realized, okay, it's time to go back into practice. And the economy was still bad. So I had to kind of band-aid my income between work at Machado Slovetti and launching Office Da again and an academic practice, starting to teach. I was teaching a little bit at Northeastern, then at RISD, and then getting the firm launched in earnest. It was at that point that Monica Ponce de Leon, my former partner and a uh, peer at the GSD, and I relaunched Office Star with Rudolph in 1991, basically. And that was really the first big chapter of the work. With the success of you know, a few PA awards, we got invited to participate in the fabrications exhibit uh, at MoMA. The call, we thought, was a joke, actually. We <laughs> it was true. And the, the burning down of the Northeastern University Chapel, for which we had done a study, that became a real commission. It was an arson, actually. We, we didn't generate the, the fire, but we were <laughs> beneficiaries of it. But these two projects were the beginnings of a building practice. We had built a, a couple of buildings with Rudolph, but with Monica, we, we launched the office in earnest in the way that you know it. She and I practiced together productively, I would say, you know, from 95 to 2005. So there was really a 10-year period that was incredibly productive and numerous you know, PA awards, numerous projects, the Architectural League in New York, and you know, just a variety of those things that everybody goes through. Right. And a, an interest, in, of course, in fabrication as a central part, not of just doing something, but theorizing construction at the same time. Mm-hmm. Around 2005, 6, 7, I don't know exactly what the date is, when she got her tenure at the GSD and eventually decided that she wanted to go down the track of deanships and things like that, she left Harvard and our 
former practice office dog came to a close, upon which you know she launched her own firm and we relaunched as Nada, and continued the work that we were competing on at the time of our splitting. And there were three or four key projects that did that. The three of them are, were all schools of architecture that I'd been working on, Georgia Tech, Melbourne School of Design, and Daniels. And these, you know, occurred at the tumultuous moment where the world economy was melting down and they kept Nada alive for a good part of, you know, the 2010s. And, you know, during this period, we formalized NADLAB as an entity. Originally, our shop was just a shop for model making. We had some challenges in our early building projects with Mantra, for which we were woefully inexperienced. And so we didn't know why contractors were charging so much for what they were doing. So our own foray into means and methods was launched there and then. We built for $33,000 what the contractor had estimated at $200,000. Wow. And we realized right then and there that contractors are kind of grifters of, of different kinds. And, and the only way to know construction is to know the exact protocols of both sourcing the materials, engineering it, and understanding the requisite labor that goes into the, its installation, and also managing complexity. And that was the first project where we built the, the dome entirely by ourselves. No longer a model, no longer a mock-up, but the thing itself. Right. That happened right after the MoMA fabrications, which was a bona fide and complex piece of laser cutting that brought a 50-foot installation within, you know, basically a quarter inch of tolerance. And that was our first lesson in collaborating with an industry partner who really knew their, their stuff to a high level of precision, but they didn't necessarily know how the piece went together. So we were working in a truly productive collaboration on that front. Those opened up a space for what I called later NADLAB to do a range of things. One, the models that we do, which are construction simulations, mock-ups, which are you know fragments of projects that will eventually get, get built either by us or by others. And then finally, full-scale fit-outs, furniture installations within uh, larger uh, environments, uh, commercial projects like the ASOP stores, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're, we definitely have some questions about NADLAB and how that all functions and how you kind of approach that uh, with clients. But maybe before we jump into that, just going back to getting off the ground. So it seems like when you were launching Office Style the first time, that was after just an under, undergraduate degree. How were you able to bring in clients and convince them of your skill set and, and value? It was the late 80s, and Rudolf had social connections to the gay network in Provincetown, and almost all of our initial jobs came from a very generous gay community. So there was, I guess, 
two jobs in Northeastern and one in Provincetown, but all of them were from the same network. This is over a two, three-year period. Yeah. You know, the next chapter of work was, you know, pre-professional, but came in purely through academic sourcing. You know, the PA awards, MoMA, the GSD projects were all out of academic credibility. And then the third platform came from, you know, at the end of the Iranian community, because I, you know, we had no real source for local income. But we had one friend, Sarah Goldhagen, who gave us a small project of bookshelves, but that small project basically panned out to a series of shortlists that are not replicable anywhere because it, it's a kind of patronage that came from Sarah Goldhagen. So it was part, you know, professional, part social, but the networks were very vulnerable and thin and came out of nowhere. Certainly nothing from RFPs and Qs, and certainly nothing from our connection to American society because we had none. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. We're we're at the point now where we're trying to kind of build and establish networks, and that's part of the. We, we have kind of a three day meeting this week where we're trying to plan the next steps of the business and try to build How those networks out. How old? Yeah, I'm 35. These guys are a little bit younger in the 30s. 31. Yeah. but we're all in our 30s and we're all still working full time. But we've been working together for eight years. And I think I mentioned to you, it started in that Timber New England competition yeah. eight years back, which we were lucky enough to work with Alan Organsky and Yugon in developing. So that kind of launched us together. And we all went to Washington University in St. Louis together and worked in and out of the fabrication shops our whole time there. So fabrication is definitely a big part of how yeah. we practice material research. But yeah, it, we're trying to figure out how, how to bring that into the practice as well and how to sell the value of that to potential clients. Right. Okay, that's good. Yeah. (laughs) Attention architects and creative minds, get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. 
follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. Yeah, so I guess going back to NABLAB, how how do you manage the client or convince them of the value added by by bringing on your fabrication services, whether it's to do a fit out or just to mock up a one-to-one kind of complex detail to show how easy it could be or how it's achievable? I don't know if it really requires... Well, doing mock-ups doesn't require convincing. Mm-hmm. Because it all it all comes down to expense. If you ask somebody else to do a mock-up, you know, they may charge you, I don't know, anywhere from ten thousand dollars to a hundred thousand dollars, depending on what it is, right? Mm-hmm. But invariably, if you control the variables, you can bring it under cost. I think doing the actual delivery of a project is much more complex because you really do need equipment and we there's a lot that we don't have, right? And and when you want to finish. I don't know, an interior that's, you know, 10,000 square feet of cabinetry, we don't have the space to store all of that and to process all of that. So we wouldn't be able to do that anyway, right? We have 4,000 square feet of workshop. And, you know, at best we can do like the the house in, in West Cornwall that we just completed a, a year ago. And that was about 1,300 square feet interior. We did all of the millwork in that and we built it all in one shot and we installed it all in one shot, but we were maxed out at that point. So convincing the client comes in two forms. One is through costs, a second through a higher quality for something that somebody else either can't do or does with compromised craft and also schedule because you can control the schedule yourself. So budget, time, craft, these are the three variables that come invariably into a collision course Mm -hmm. in construction. And everybody tells you, you can have two of the three, but you can't have all three at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that's a way of absorbing those three, but then you're also absorbing the, the risk with that. And so often when you don't make money, it's because you don't make the money, not because somebody screwed you over. Yeah. And I imagine it's a slightly different kind of contractual agreement with the client as well. Have you found like hesitancy from the client or just by being able to say that we can do this better and on time? They, they I, I look, it's a separate entity, right? So you, you don't, it's a different contract. Mm-hmm. You've got an architectural contract. It's a design contract. NADLAB has a construction contract with them. Mm-hmm. And you have to have your own insurance for that. You have to right. have, you know, your own down payments for that, and a, a way of processing material costs and all of that. So, we've learned a little bit from other millwork companies, but I, I would say we're, we're more or less of a Mickey Mouse entity because we're not processing work for anybody else. We're doing stuff for ourselves, basically. Yeah. Is it uh, places like C two Studio, or? I don't know, some of these bigger outfits, they are actually doing construction for others also. Right, right. Yeah, we've, we've looked at them as well. Um, you, I was going to, is it the same staff, Nader, or is it a different staff altogether, the, the NADLAB versus NADA staff? The best circumstances that 
we've ever done is when the staff is the same. That doesn't mean that everybody at NADA is downstairs in the, in the lab. It means that the people are, that are downstairs also have a critical role upstairs. Whenever somebody's been only downstairs, it's produced a cultural rift mm. of technicians which are either bad designers or don't have an understanding of what's going on downstairs or in design. And so they're making things, but they don't know why. Mm-hmm. So the best individuals that have been at the helm downstairs have a very significant role upstairs in design. That's interesting. Yeah. In terms of the shop build-out, you guys have CNC. What kind of toys do you have? We have minimal toys. I mean, we have the you know the you know laser cutter. We have the CNC router. We have some welding equipment, wood cutting equipment. You know your your basic tools. We have a, you know, the shrink wrapper. We have no casting material, but that's it, basically. It's not a very elaborate shop, frankly. Yeah. It's more for prototyping, testing, rather than large-scale production. Totally, totally, yeah. yeah. And the file of it, it's exclusively with your in-house, right? You, you say you don't... Fabla doesn't take any other projects from... Uh, we have. I, I've done stuff for friends, but I haven't done you know, major fabrication for them. People that are graduates of the office sometimes ask us to, you know, rent out the space and rent out <laughs> some of our staff to do other projects and we'll do that for them. Yeah. That's a personal thing. You know, it's not something, you know, we don't make major money off of it. We try not to lose major money. off. Of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And do you think it's obviously intentional that you're not kind of using the C2 model where they're fabricating other people's stuff? that's an intentional decision. You have no interest in doing that or the focus is more, you want to keep it on the architecture. Well, I don't have the staff that has a logistical ability to handle that much complexity. Yeah. And because of my academic practice, I know that I can operate successfully with up to 30 people with total a total understanding of who we are as staff, as consultants, as clients, and as projects. Mm-hmm. Anything above 30 people, I can't handle. Right. Mm-hmm. So this tells you how, how is it that you can grow. You, when you grow, you either are genuine partners that can build leadership in different arenas that you trust each other with, or you just can't ha- handle volume. So what do you need? Somebody needs to bring in jobs. So far, that's been me. Somebody needs to design fast. I, I, the word I'm using here very self-consciously is fast. Because if you're not fast, you can't do anything. Mm-hmm. So that's usually me and Arthur. And you need somebody who's managing the drawing sets. Mm-hmm. And that's usually Arthur, except I'm managing the set that is either in design development or in CDs, but not in between. Mm. So I'm very much involved in the beginning and at the ends, but I let the the middle be quite chaotic so that people can actually do what they're meant to do. So, but that's too much for me, you see. So in a regular office, when you got an S, an O, and an M, there's kind of a reason for that. There's somebody out there getting jobs 
There's somebody who's designing and there's somebody who's managing projects. There's a reason for that. And, and if you bring fabrication into that, that's yet another complexity in there. That is its own thing. So it's really, really a lot of work, particularly given the type of work that we do that for better or for worse, sometimes has had too much complexity for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. But that's it. I mean, that's sort of how we've done it. Bank restaurant, for instance, was, was basically commissioned out to fabricators. They won the project and then they realized they couldn't manage it. <laughs> so we had to step in and manage it for them. Wow. But really at no extra price because we, we basically realized that we would end up winning more design fee by just managing it mm-hmm. rather than trying to argue for more fee and extending the schedule. Yeah. And so it, obviously you've been involved in academia this whole time as well. What are kind of the benefits of that and, and how does that play into your practice? I think the cultural benefit must be big, but I don't know in concrete terms any moment when academia has actually gotten us anything. Uh-huh. So usually like the headships and the deanships get in the way of your practice because they are big responsibilities and people know that if you're doing that, then how can you be doing this? Mm. But I do think it, it has produced a, an aura of trust is the best that I, that, okay, that this is something important that they're doing and, you know, Harvard, MIT, have big names. So, you know, this is a significant practice of some sort. So it brings a general legitimacy to the firm, but never in anything specific, I would say. Hmm. And in terms of, um, I guess, you're able to kind of pull employees from there, you get to kind of work with people or? No, actually, I, well, I, I used to do that when I was at RISD, very much so. When I went to the GSD, there was a healthy amount of that. And then as I went to MIT, that stopped because, you know, as I got pulled into the headship and all of that, my connection to studios was less. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have your own pool at that point. So, yeah. so I would say over the last 15 years, the staff is much more diversified and actually to a fault that Sometimes you need people that are just better trained for the kind of details that you're after. And so right. that's been a real problem for me. Yeah, that's interesting. You said you're heavily involved in at the beginning and at the end. Is the beginning when you might do some testing in terms of integrating the NAD lab resources? Or is that part of like your quick design charrettes? Or... Does that come in later? Does the rest of your staff kind of work that into the process? Like where in your process, how does that typically uh, transcribe, I guess, throughout the life there, of the project? There are two questions embedded in your question. Yeah. The beginning of design isn't only about fabrication. Yeah. It's about urban design. It's about programming. It's about understanding the culture of the client. It's about understanding the local construction industry of the place that you're working in. It's all of that stuff. And you're working at all of it at the same time. The fact that we bring means and methods into an earlier phase is something that only we do and some others, of course, but I'm saying that it's particular to us because 
we will identify usually either a material or a fabrication protocol that ends up making its way all the way through the process. Mm. And, you know, at RISD, it was the CLT decision. There was like this, like very early on, we went to the president, we, you know, they said, we're not going lead. So mm. we want to do something sustainable, but we're not going to go for the lead process. We don't have the time or the finances to do so. They said, what are the some of the ways in which something like that could have a huge impact on the project? We said, go, go CLT. Mm-hmm. Because that, that's one decision. Then you don't have to go through all of the lead items. You just right. you've made one decision that has transformed radically the way that the building works, and then everything works around that. So Mantra obviously was our you know our first project where you know complexity was something that we handled from day one. We realized that you know the contractor is a total idiot. So you either have to smell a project and find who's the idiot or who's your partner mm-hmm. because there are really good builders out there. And if you know, you're going to be building well with them, they're going to become, you know, you know, we've worked with CW Keller, for instance, on numerous oh, yeah. occasions, and they're just great. Yeah. And they are true partners, but at the same token, if you fall into bed with the wrong person, you're, you're damned for another two years to come uh, in those collaborations. And then you have to own it in in your own way. So I think the answer to your question is that we bring the things that you would normally get at the end of DDCD phase in the means and methods discussions, you push them up front so that you can enter into that discussion with the clients. Now, some of that gets addressed in the simulation models that you make at a large scale, some of it in mock-ups. And you do those a little bit at your expense, a little bit at the client's expense as you begin to develop that. And, and when, when something becomes part of the client's decision, then they never value engineer it because it's something that they, they gave birth to. Yeah. And have, have you had success with you know an initial idea that the client or if you're talking to a contractor is like, it's going to be too expensive, too complicated? And you've been able to kind of take it on by hand and show that it is not and kind of prove that it's, it's reasonable biggest, to keep in. The biggest example of that is the, the vaulting at the Daniels School of Ar- Architecture. That uh, came a million dollars over budget because it was conceived of and conceptualized in concrete. Mm-hmm. And as you know, in concrete, you build twice. Right. Once the formwork. And then the second, the concrete, and then you have to dismantle everything. So by going into a stick-built steel building and then plastering it, we took a building up to the third level in concrete and then stick-built the roof. Wow. And by doing that, we brought the budget down $800,000. But wow. the way we did that was to build a full-scale mock-up in our, in our lab. And in a way, the contractor was stuck. The contractor <laughs> knew it was possible. Right. It didn't want to do it. Yep. The client insisted on it. And, and that was a huge coup. Wow. So it is definitely beneficial to be able to do yeah. that and, and kind of fight for what you know is actually achievable. Right. That and a good client. Rich, Richard Summer, who was the dean at Daniels, fought tooth and nail for us. Wow. That's great. You won't get clients like that every day. 
Yeah, <laughs> can imagine. <laughs> We're just trying to get one client right now, so <laughs> we'll, we'll take what we can get. Where, where do you practice? We're in New York and Lexi is in LA. So we're starting a bi-coastal practice currently. Hmm. Right. Have you thought of developing any of your own projects? I've, I've yeah. read into it, <laughs> thought about it, financing, and we have friends in development as well. So we've thought about it, but have not chosen to pursue that at the moment. Well, if I, if I, I haven't done it, but I... Hmm. If you ask me if I have one regret mm. of something I didn't do earlier in my career, it was that. And by okay. development, I don't mean like development pixel. Just build one house, mm. the three of you. Just whatever it is. Just buy the cheapest piece of <laughs> plot. <laughs> build smartly. Don't do all of the your design tricks in one one building. Just build right. smart but make sure it's architecture, sell it with a profit or try not to lose money with it. And I will bet my practice on it that that will catapult you into another stratosphere because it will give you access to things that you simply won't have otherwise. It will lead to other projects. It will lead to a much larger scale uh, set of endeavors and a house may turn into a row house a row house may turn into housing uh, and the housing may you know may result in something much bigger depending on what you're into of course so you guys may go deep into fabrication or deep into a, a design office but in my case i was never interested to become a fab lab still am not it's just something i'm interested in as a mechanism for architectural discussions and expansion of architectural sphere so but i do think that your ability i think that your ability to control not only craft and construction protocol goes hand in hand with your ability to quantity survey which means that the amount of money that you lose in a design process has to do with somebody else putting a price on what you do mm-hmm. but if you're the ones pricing it out yourselves you understand the value that you bring to it you understand when you're going over time you understand when what materials need to be value engineered and you'll make the profit all on your on yourself right. assuming that the economic cycle is on the upswing and in your benefit that you don't have like a 2008 happening to you right i believe that you would really change the course of your practice. Emerging from our charrette, we had a number of goals in mind for our coming year and beyond. Start to focus on, you know, awards and and prizes that we actually want to go after because that's part of having your firm recognized. A lot of that's from within the industry, but it gives you a little bit of credit. I see a note here to work on leadership and also our true fashion. It says Purdue faster, but I think that's supposed to be produced faster. We're all awful spellers. So I think we coming out of the the workshop, we had the idea that would do these kind of four weekend long sessions to really do focused competitions. And in those, we would trade off leadership. So rather than having a competition that takes two months, we're going to try to do it Friday after our nine to five, all the way to Sunday at like one in the morning, if that's what it takes to try to get a competition like fully out. 
We've never done that, but <laughs> but we have we have cut it down to like oh yeah no we've totally yeah, yeah we've totally cut it down but we've gotten it to more like okay all the design work is done by the end of that weekend and then we're able to like be producing like particular drawings on our own schedules and time mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. yeah that was a total like game changer in making also competitions more approachable I think mentally because every time we were talking about doing one I was thinking oh. God, we're going to just, I'm just going to be burnt out like two months of this. Like mm-hmm. it's going to be like, what's going to happen to the rest of my life during these two months. <laughs> and so having like a better strategy of how to approach those makes it more like mentally, I think, approachable to work on those kind of things on the side. Yeah. And it changed what type of projects we were looking at at that point, you know? Yeah. Ones that we could do potentially in the in kind of a weekend charrette. We were also able to then like we did a series of like researching what was out there and what was coming up throughout the year. Mm-hmm. And like I said before, like setting up that schedule of all of our schedules. I'm not sure we had really had we done that at that point. No. I think that's when we really set up a schedule and we're like we because we would be texting like Saturday, oh shoot, I have something tomorrow at this time. I can't mm-hmm. meet yeah. and at this time. Can we meet later? Like and it was always like a back and forth, like not all the time, but maybe every few weeks. And so at that work session, we were able to really set up our yearly schedule, like understand that we kind of need to be accountable for each other when we're gonna go on certain vacations and when that is gonna align and then what Chris is saying, like when these kind of weekend like more focused weekend charrettes can happen so that then we can also rely on the time, that time being dedicated to this and another weekend that we can have dedicated personal time. So setting up that kind of framework is still how we're operating now. And it's way better. Like we we did not have that in the first year. And it was sometimes we would get frustrated with each other. Like, how did you forget? You're like, totally like Lexi why do you have a like tennis match and you totally forgot until like Saturday night like (laughs) like I'd be like sorry like I don't know I want to do both so she's making herself the villain but it was all of us it's all me too no I know I'm just saying like it would happen there are three of us so like the scheduling is like a really big piece to like how we can actually do some of this and reach attain certain goals at the end of the year yeah and Lexi, not not just on like the weekly meetings, it also also helped us outline, you know, really what we're trying to do for the year. That's what I mean. Yeah, I think we we had our open items list that we leaned heavy on that first year, and that was really great at checking off a bunch of things we knew we had to do. But every weekend we were hopping on a call and just seeing what was on the list that was assigned that week, and maybe not remaining as focused on the bigger picture things that also needed to happen. So yeah, reframing and actually having an annual schedule was really important. And I think also in our conversation with Nadir, it totally reframed how we thought about bringing fabrication as part of our practice. We had looked at them as a firm that su- successfully uses like a fabrication shop, a massive fabrication shop to kind of do elements of their work and also bring in potential projects with that. And I think he helped us to reframe that that's not really how they're using it. And that, you know, it's almost like a whole other business that you have to establish. So it really reframed how we thought about engaging with fabrication as part of our professional practice. 
Coming to the close of our first year as business owners, we uncovered a number of lessons that may prove useful for your journey. Having a partner, someone you trust is is such a godsend, not just to like share the workload, but you know, the, the self-doubt that happens, I think it, it helps a lot with your being able to mentally grasp everything that you're doing. So it is daunting if you've got, you know, if you can find a trustworthy business partner that's highly recommended by me. Uh, <laughs> I don't, does it have to be a business partner though? No, because I mean, we've talked to a few people that are sole practitioners. I think it's more that they had a network they could rely on. Yes. Yeah. It just so happens we're partners and we rely on each other and mm-hmm. that's, this is our like immediate network, but we've talked to a few people where like their family is someone they're relying on for like mm-hmm. heavily or their, you know, like their spouse, I mean, specifically, or, you know, other people in the industry that they rely on to like get feedback from. But right. yeah, I, you know, obviously you don't have to be a part, like you don't have to have like partners, but it's good for us. So what I'm hearing there is marry Rich and uh, just <laughs> kind of <laughs> let them float your firm for a bit. And uh, No, I, oh, no, uh, I mean, nice. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just saying like, you know, he had a really supportive partner and yes. so- in terms of life. And so he was able to do, you know, get going on his own stuff while mm-hmm. having that network to support him. So we, we rely on each other and we happen to be business partners, but we're also like friend, we're net, like, uh, what do you call it? Friends. Yeah. We're friends. <laughs> well, we're reliant, we're reliant on each other emotionally for support. Right. Yes. Is what I'm what I'm trying to say. So if if that if you get that in another way, I think you you need to have that backbone to Jeff's point, like something behind you so that you don't feel like you're just flopping around. Oh yeah. When you when you have those moments of self-doubt that there's somebody there to be like, you know, it's fine. It's really not that big of a deal or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah, somebody you trust that can be critical. Also, like while we're stating here that we rely on each other, we also have a much bigger network supporting us, like friends and loved ones who are just incredibly supportive and try to help us get our name out there or, you know, provide feedback on things. Yeah, it's it's always great going home and visiting family and running things by them. I think as you'll hear, Lexi's parents weighed in a lot on the name game stuff and, you know, always provided great feedback to us along with all of our parents. <laughs> so it's always great to talk to people outside of the industry and, and beyond just the three of us. Recommendations for year one, definitely hire a lawyer. That That's one that I think you <laughs> we messed up. And I think we knew that was something we should do, but we tried to do it without. Maybe there are more like business savvy people out there, but I, I think that was a mistake that we could have avoided and and would be nice to get right the first time. Everything takes longer than you think. So once we were correcting on the business front, it took, you know, seven or eight months to register the business and get it properly set up. I don't know. It looks like one of you added a note about getting on social media early. Did did I did add I that? Add that? Who added that? I didn't add it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's obviously smart in getting out there early. Just any potential to bring it in clients, obviously get up there early. I was going to add my recommendation would be to, you know, take the time to do a reassessment, um, like an annual reassessment, you know, a big picture because things will change along the way, obviously. So 
That's my recommendation. Yeah. Don't be afraid of that change. Also, like acknowledge when you're not doing something properly and just kind of regroup and, and figure out yeah. what you can learn from it and how to, how to adjust your business plan accordingly and uh, get out there, network. Before we wrap up, we wanted to take a moment to thank those who made this journey and podcast possible. Nearly three years ago, we reached out to the team at Gable Media with the seemingly long shot idea of creating this podcast as a resource for others in the AEC community. Much to our surprise, Mark LePage and Demetrius Lynch responded immediately and enthusiastically to the idea. It's been a partnership ever since, and we want to thank both Mark and Demetrius for their tireless efforts in making this possible and for putting up with three fledgling entrepreneurs. We'd also like to thank all the mentors who graciously took the time to speak with us and coach us along the way, as well as a big thanks to our friends, partners, and families who make this endeavor possible. We would not be able to do any of this without the support of so many others. And finally, thank you for joining us this season. In pulling back the curtain on our journey, our mission was to demystify the rarely heard full story behind what it was really like to start a new architecture firm. We hope our story thus far has served as both a roadmap to understand the complexities as well as an inspiration for you to take the leap. So, are you ready to embark on this journey? Small firm entrepreneur architects, get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect podcast, where business meets architecture. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. There's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best, like the best, best, best. <laughs> so for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today, is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses.